you know, my first book didn't even come out till I was like 36 or something, maybe even older. Uh, so, and, and it was, a uh, like a nice literary hit. And then, so it was, uh, a real long, almost like, you know, a, a period of getting used to what attention felt like and the different, you know, I mean, really it's like, I've said before, it's kind of like if you eat, you know, a big, you know, shit ton of, of beans, you're going to get farty. That, that's not, that's not on you. That's not you. It's, it's, you don't have a character defect. So I think if you get attention of any kind, and you can see this even on your birthday, you know, even the day after your birthday, we're kind of pissy, you know? So I think this whole thing is you take, you get attention uh, and it makes you a little full of shit that, that is going to happen. So when it happens the way it did for me, like just very, very slowly over about a 20 year period, you get a little more, a little more, you kind of get in touch with the phenomenon. You're like, okay, so I've just been praised. I'm a little full of myself. I've just been criticized. I'm ready to jump off a cliff. Uh, and it comes in, it's almost like inoculation. It comes in small doses. And by this time, you know, I, I'm, at least I'm aware that it's a potential problem. Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 27. I'm Jamie Berger, and I have a special guest with me here in the studio today, Mecky. Hi. Come on up, kitty. Come on, say hello. With me is our 17-year-old Maine Coon cat, Mech, who will be commenting at will. Good girl. George Saunders is best known for his short stories. His books Civil Warland in Bad Decline, Pastoralia, and most recently The Tenth of December are three of my favorite books of short stories ever. In 2013, with the release of The Tenth of December, George Saunders' career blew up to a degree that very few writers, let alone short story writers, ever experience. The New York Times Magazine called the 10th of December the best book you'll read all year. Time Magazine dubbed him one of the 100 most influential people on the planet. He was a National Book Award finalist and a MacArthur Fellow. And the list really does go on couple of things that in the conversation might need explaining are I refer obliquely to a wonderful graduation speech on the importance of kindness. George Saunders wrote a couple of years ago called Congratulations, by the way, and I include a link to that in the notes today. I also mentioned in our conversation an essay he wrote this past year about his travels with the Trump train. And that was in The New Yorker, and I'll have a link to that as well. On February 14th, George Saunders' debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, is coming out. Also on February 14th, the audio version of the book is coming out. 
as read by 166 voices, among whom are Nick Offerman, David Sedaris, Carrie Brownstein, Miranda July, Lena Dunham, Ben Stiller, Julianne Moore, Susan Sarandon, Bradley Whitford, Bill Hader, Megan Mullally, Rain Wilson, Jeff Tweedy, Jeffrey Tambor, Keegan-Michael Key, Don Cheadle, and Mary Carr. I'm very excited to listen to it when I drive to see him read in Cambridge next week. After a bit of Pacific time, Eastern time, appointment confusion, we spoke at the end of January. Hello. <laughs> Hello, George Saunders. Hey, got it right now, Jimmy. Uh, I want to start by saying that I, I, I really, uh, I appreciate that you're, you're wanting to talk to me about, you're, you're doing all this press for the book, and I want to talk to you about not the book. And I especially don't want to talk about the book because Friday night, about halfway through the book, and I'm like, I got to finish the book. But I'm enjoying the book too much, and I'm not reviewing the book, so I'm not. I don't want to rush through the book. That works for me. It's kind of a relief to talk about something else. So, I thought before I dive in and ask you a question that maybe with our emailing you might have something you wanted to to start me off with about fame. Uh, well, I mean, the only you know when you wrote me originally, I thought of that uh, something David Foster Wallace said once about the idea that the you know, even the most famous writer in the world is about as famous as a local TV weatherman. You know, so I, I always feel like fame, eh, it's not, it's not that exactly. It's something, it's something else, you know, but, um, yeah, it, it's not, it's not a real, it's not a real problem in my life. <laughs> no, it's true. You don't have, I've talked to other people about the walking down the street, you know, you can still walk down most streets, I assume, and not be. Yeah. Well, sometimes it, sometimes I think I'm Wolf Blitzer, but other than that, it's not a big issue. But it, it seems like in the past few years, though, since since uh, the success of the last book, you've you've certainly had some more proximity to it. Yeah, I mean, you, it might be like um, I mean, honestly, I could say there's like three or four times where somebody on the street has said, "Oh, you know, what, love your work and this that," and then you do get maybe. Um, you know, it's actually nice about it. I mean, to, to not bullshit is that it, it does get you a certain entree into certain worlds that you might want to get into, or you get invited to things that are interesting, or uh, you get a, a, a bit more of a platform if you, if you want one, or, you, you know, you go to do a talk somewhere and there's a small little bubble of people who know who you are, which then kind of enacts a different communication mode. You know, if people know who you are and respect you and they are there to hear you, it, it sort of opens up some possibilities of communication. So, and so, I mean, from my point of view, the writing version of, you know, whatever this thing is, is the best because it doesn't impede your ability to observe the world. You know, you don't get that kind of Heisenberg, Heisenberg uncertainty principle where you're changing the reality that you're observing. Uh, but when you want it or you need it, you can get, you know, 10% more something, more access or more, um, entree and that that's you know that's really wonderful and i assume it also probably helped the producers of uh for those of you who don't know uh 
you do know you heard my introduction, which I haven't done yet. <laughs> um, that 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 on on Valentine's Day, George Saunders' new novel Lincoln and the Bardo is coming out, and there is an audio version coming out with a cast of how many? One hundred sixty-six, including your Julianne Moore's and Ben Stiller's and Susan Sarandon's, and I kind of assume that that is easier to and my mom and dad. Oh, and and your mom and dad and you as 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 the Reverend. Yes, typecasting. That is really great that your mom and dad are in it. Yeah, they they were really sweet about it. But I assume that that four years ago this wouldn't have happened. Uh, I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's right. There's um, I guess there's a well with my career, you know, it started out very quietly and late, and it kind of just slowly, slowly grew. So I think there there is kind of this weird feeling of a. I don't know if you call it groundswell, but like a kind of a rising tide of of uh, people who know something about your work, and then that does it makes things possible that that wouldn't have been possible at the beginning, you know, for sure. And in this case, you know, I, I'd uh, Nick Offman had interviewed me for his book, and we became friends. And uh, then, like I had met Jeff Tweedy on the Colbert uh, finale, you know. So so these things are enabled by for sure. Yeah, yeah. Which is really nice. I mean, actually, that's one of the best things about it is you get to meet these people who are really intense and that you admire. And you can kind of meet them on not maybe not on an equal footing, but at least on a, a valid footing where, uh, you know, I mean, we've all had that experience where you meet somebody you admire and you don't have any, you know, you're just a face in the crowd and you go up to them and, you know, what you can just say, I love your work and they say thanks. And But if you have some kind of mutual um, connection through you know, having known each other's work, then it's kind of cool. And, and it's, uh, you know, all, all good as far as I can tell. Yeah. And, and it's such a great serendipity that you, that you, this next project has all these voices and whose idea was it to have a cast of thousands? Well, it was kind of, uh, I had an idea, like a little seed of an idea because I was imagining trying to read it, the stupid thing aloud, you know, and it was like, there was so many voices and, uh, I could just imagine, you know, nine hours of my south side of Chicago lispy, weird, you know, manic voice. Uh, so I mentioned it to this woman, Kelly Gilday, who'd produced the 10th of December audiobook. I kind of mentioned it just like, you know, wouldn't it be cool if, and she was incredible. She was like, yeah, that, let's do it. You know, and then she, uh, I mean, she did all the heavy lifting, all the arranging and all the everything. So it was really just an idea to kind of get me out of what felt like an odious reading. I didn't, I didn't want to do it. And then, um, you know, the form of the book sort of suggests it would be, you could do it that way. It's, it's in a series of mo like linked monologues. So uh, that was just so nice, you know, to have the, um, we'd worked together really, really well on the previous book. And, and she was so willing to just go, yeah, let's, you know, let's throw a party and try to do it. And so that was really cool. I see Jeff Tweedy as Captain William Prince. Yep. He's amazing. He's great. And well, yeah, I, I'm very excited to listen to it. And I wish I had known about it sooner, and I could have groveled to be, to be a one a one page voice. Um, oh, we didn't use you because we were scrambling. You know, we had uh, you know we we kind of got the the actors that we knew, and Kelly got a bunch of voice actors who were wonderful, and we're still like probably like sixty people short. And then you you're like, well, we need this many men and this many women, and you know so. But it was fun. it was really like putting on a show. You know, it was like putting on a show like a community project. Like, come on, can you get? you know, get my friends from high school. I got a couple of 
high school teachers that really saved my life on there. So it's, for me, it's really like as a, as a kind of just a personal document, it's pretty cool. I'm sure it was, uh, it felt great for them to do it too. Was this, I assume people phoned some of these in. They did them remotely. I think it would be um, Skyping. Kelly would Skype in, and, but they were, they were all in the studio. So I think we used in total 11 different studios around the country. No, and in fact, nobody, I think it's true that nobody was ever in the same room at the same time. Like, you know, they would, uh, even in bits that are back and forth dialogue, they'd be recorded in different places at different times and then edited together. So it, it was really a technical amazement that I had nothing to do with. I just would, Kelly would call me and go, oh my God, so-and-so kicked so much ass today. <laughs> that, that was about the involvement. That's terrific. So in, in essence, you got to collaborate with all these wonderful people, but you didn't you didn't you didn't spend time with them you just you all uh, you know that's terrific right yeah it it was really a really a cool collaboration because it was kind of like you know i had so much fun writing the book and it really was um you know you get into this stage i mean speaking of fame or, or public performance you get into this stage and you're doing a lot of talking about this creative act that in you know my thing is you really can't talk about it too i mean the things that actually happen when you're writing a book are so magical and strange and intuitive that it's really hard to recreate it accurately. So you develop a kind of a syntax in addition to talk about it approximately. But what was nice about this was to have that experience at four year, just like the best artistic fun I've ever had and be kind of loath to give it up at the end. Like, Oh God, I don't want to finish it. I'm really liking this. And then to have kind of a second life in this, in the form of this audiobook collaboration was really sweet. It's different, you know, it's a different work of art and it proceeds on slightly, slightly different rules, but it was nice to, almost like a kind of a um, transitioning out of that phase to work on this for a few months and sort of, you know, an extended goodbye at the train station kind of thing. Is, is the pub date February 14th for a reason? E yes. Oh, no, not for a reason. No, I think, you know, strangely, I think what we were, we could maybe have done it in the fall, but there's a lot of thought that we didn't want to get get the election, you know, and now we get, instead we get the apocalypse. The the one thing that I I think you're clearly making, the answer is very clear, is that some people, you know, feel very impeded by a first, you know, by a huge success. And it doesn't seem like the the... the all of it from 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 10th of December got in your way at all? No, I mean, I was old, you know. I mean, if it had happened at 22, uh, it would have been a different ballgame. But I had, you know, my first book didn't even come out until I was like 36 or something, maybe even older. Uh, so, and, and it was a, uh, like a nice literary hit. And then, it's, so it was uh, a real long, almost like, you know, a, a period of getting used to what, attention felt like and the different you know i mean really it's like i've said before it's kind of like if you eat you know a big you know shit ton of, of beans you're going to get farty that that's not that's not on you that's not you it's, it's, you don't have a character defect so i think if you get attention of any kind and you can see this even on your birthday you know even the day after your birthday you are kind of pissy you know so i think this whole thing is you take you get attention uh and it makes you a little full of shit that that is going to happen so when it happens the way it did for me, like just very, very slowly over about a 20 year period, you get a little more, a little more, you kind of get in touch with the phenomenon. You're like, okay, so I've just been praised. I'm a little full of myself. I've just been criticized. I'm ready to jump off a cliff. Uh, and it comes in, it's almost like inoculation. It comes in small doses. And by this time, 
you know, I, I'm, at least I'm aware that it's a potential problem, you know, that you go in this phase of a book and you're, you know, 30% too happy with yourself or it goes badly and you're 30% too unhappy with yourself. That's sort of something you can step outside and, and, and watch a little bit. And then two, you know, what I found is, is I've gotten older, just naturally there's a, there's a kind of gratitude that settles in like, man, my, you know, my life could have been a lot different than this. I could have not gotten to do art for a living. And, and, uh, so that, so between those two, it's kind of, uh, I think mostly manageable. The only thing I'll say honestly is, um, as you enact this cycle of making something and putting it out in the world and getting feedback, um, you know, you, you do it a few times and if you do it successfully, you become aware that, you know, you're still going to die at the end. But that, and when I was younger, I thought that stuff was, I mean, I didn't think it overtly, but I think I did it partly as a kind of cushioning for some of the rougher things in life. Like, I, you know, I don't want to think about that. If I'm just successful or if I'm just making something beautiful, I don't have to worry about it. And after so many repetitions, you're like, oh, actually, no, that doesn't change any of that. You still have these, you know, these big issues to deal with. And I also, I think I'd, be, I'd become more aware of how addicted I am to, um, uh, I, I would say addicted to being in control of my phenomenon or like addicted to being perceived as a good guy, a good writer, nice guy, good father, good husband. Uh, because when, when any of those things get disrupted even a little bit, I'm kind of jangly, you know, kind of upset. So especially this, like, like now the book's about to come out and, uh, <clears throat> you know, you have that feeling like, Oh God, this is actually going to be in the world. And some people aren't going to like it. Uh, you become sort of, you know, newly aware of how, how f- kind of fragile it is. And in, in an atmosphere where you're alone and you're writing or in an atmosphere where things are going well, um, y- you can sort of fool yourself into thinking you're, you're clear of that addiction to success or to, you know, uh, and, and so, so it's just, I, again, I think all this stuff is, you know, as, as when you're writing, you, you know, you're generating problems basically and the artistic mindset for me is to say, okay, you know, a problem is, I mean, kind of new age, but a problem is actually an opportunity. So that pertains to the actual doing of the work. And it also pertains to the attention afterwards. And I think in a way it seems superficial, but the addiction to being perceived as a good guy leads to behaving as, you know, fake it till you make it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's true. This morning when we didn't reach each other, uh, I was not, you know, I, I've already told you I'm a fan, blah, blah, blah. And this is a, this is important to my little thing. But I didn't worry at all because I texted my wife and she's like, oh, no. I'm like, no, no, this <laughs> will be in touch. This would be too, this would be so off brand if you didn't <laughs> work it out with me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah off brand. Yeah. I'm just happy to know there's a brand. No, I mean, that's right. And, I, you know, I think that's kind of the... Uh, well, not, not only it, you're absolutely right. It, it's kind of like by simulating a, you know, a good person, you can actually become more of one. Uh, but then too, you know, you, you're um, to, to prioritize that is, you know, is good. And uh, also, you know, the, the, the thing I found early on when I, like even when the first book came out and you're doing interviews for the first time, there's a strong urge to construct somebody, you know, to decline this question and to always dress this way and to, you know, and I just found that exhausting, you know, and, and even the thought of it was, I didn't, I, I would say, well, who should I construct? And I couldn't come up with anything. <clears throat> so in a sense, it just became kind of a, you know, <clears throat> uh, in terms of just making my life easier, 
just to try to put as little distance between, you know, the, the public and private selves as possible. That's just, it's an incredible stress reducer because you just say what you really think. And, it, you know, then it, it, uh, sometimes you don't, you know, it looks stupid or you say something dumb or, or your presentation isn't spectacular or you disappoint somebody, but in the long run, it's, it's, um, much better for your artistic life. And I, and I noticed that, you know, uh, when you start off on an artistic career, there's lots of decisions to be made. And early on, because my writing time was at such a premium, I was still working at an engineering company. And I got in the habit of really trying to think of every aspect of one's, of my public life uh, in, in terms of would it help the next book or not. So if somebody says, do you want to do X? I'm like, well, <clears throat> is there any way that this would help me expand myself as a writer and as a person? Uh, if not, then probably I shouldn't do it. And actually, that's, I mean, it, it, of course, you can rationalize anything, but, but it's a kind of good way of saying, you know, how should I manage myself in public? Well, uh, in what way will it help you t- to make a better next book? That, and it seemed like kind of a simple equation in a certain way. That, that addresses something I, I always bring up with people, and that is this fear of, you know, even in my little ways as, you know, the guy who owns that bar or the guy who wrote that thing, when you meet people who know you from the outside thing of people placing things upon me mm-hmm. yeah. that I'm going to disappoint. Yes. And if you don't, yeah, if you just are yourself in your work or if your work is, is uh, big words like honest, uh, you know, then, then it shouldn't be that big an issue, I guess. Right. Cause I, you know what I found myself doing is actually just conceding in advance that I would disappoint them. Like I know I will, because I, I, have, I'm never, uh, I, I said, I, my best self is in my stories because I work on them such a long time and I bring so many different parts of myself to the table that, uh, you know, it's, it can, you can make a sort of a rarefied thing that is not you. You know, you wish, I wish I was as ABC as the, you know, as, as nice or as, you know, well, you're not, that's why you do it. So then, you know, um, I, I do remember that feeling early on of meeting somebody I'm, like, I remember meeting Dave Foster Wallace and, and feeling like, I hope he, I hope I can, you know, present in such a way that he'll, you know, that it'll make sense seen side by side with my stories. I'm like, that's ridiculous. You, that's stupid. Just concede that you're, you're going to be your same usual dope. You know, you're, I mean, I'm neurotic. I talk too fast, all those things, you know, uh, you're just going to be that person. That's okay. That's, that's me. But the work is actually what you're putting, you know, you're kind of putting stock in that and it, it makes it easier just to go. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm definitely a letdown in person. Sorry, but you know, and then, but then also it frees you up to be nice and to be, um, you know, to just to try to be, uh, you know, open to people and, and, and also let gratitude comes in, you know, that, there was a time when I had zero readers and then I had 12, you know, and then I had 200 and, um, you know, to really, to really say what a nice difference it is to have X number of readers as opposed to zero. And, to, uh, you know, my readers tend to be really interesting people. And, and, uh, the thought that I could make a positive difference in the life of somebody who's really bright and really worldly and doesn't know me is that's a, that's a privilege. It, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If if um, 10th of December hadn't had the success that it had, would you be feeling the short story writer's pressure and like, this is your novel? And that's always, you know, that's since you know, the 80s. I, I remember 
Carver being, you know, judged or could never be judged as great because he hadn't written the big book and, you know, or the long book or the, the novel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, I guess, uh, kind of in the spirit of what I said earlier, I, I, what I noticed was when, uh, let's say before 10th of December came out and, and it was, you know, I didn't, we didn't know that it would be successful. My thought was kind of like, either way, you're going to have to play off the energy of that. So let's say it was a, it was just normal, like not a big success. Then I think that would make me hungrier to do more. And the more for me doesn't necessarily mean longer. It just means deeper. You know, so I think if that book had been, you know, not successful or not as successful, I think it just would have, I would have put the, you know, say the disappointment uh, back into the hopper. And and for me, a real profitable feeling is kind of like do something, get a response and that feeling of like, really, that's all I'm getting, you know, but not, not in an embittering way, but in like, oh, right then, let me, <laughs> let me go even deeper. You know, let me, if that didn't ring your bell, let me try harder. So that was a good feeling. Uh, but then the fact that it was successful had a sort of slightly different thing, which was um, almost like a pat on the back, like, oh, they got that. Okay. So you can afford to take a, you know, additional chance. So again, I mean, I, in a certain way, I, I think part of the game is to play yourself a little bit. Um you know, if your goal is to get to the end of your life and be as productive and beautiful as you, an artist as you can be, then at every step of the way, you should be prepared to use whatever happens to further that goal. It's a little bit like self-manipulation, you know. While, while maintaining being a good person. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing, though, actually. When you think of it, I mean, if, you, if I go out in the yard and fall and break my leg, you, I mean, I can say, oh, no, I'm doomed. You know, what is what crappy luck the world is conspiring against me? Those media elites. Or, but, but, or I can just, get, you know, I can say, okay, a broken leg. Well, that's interesting. You know, sucks, hurts. It's going to screw up my tour. But uh, I'm not going to go on a tour with a broken leg. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I'm not trying to make myself out to be a Pollyanna, but, but, you, but basically part of the artistic juggernaut is to say, to the world, whatever you give me, I'm going to do my best to plow it under and, and use it, you know? So that also would pertain to one's uh, career trajectory, theoretically, you know, you could, um, I mean, I know, you know, starting late and having the first three books come out and kind of get nice attention, but nothing earth shattering was an amazing gift in terms of productivity, because I just kept going, all right, I guess that's not the, uh, I haven't hit the nerve yet. And whereas I think if you hit it the first time out, you, of course, your inclination is going to be to think, oh, I got it, you know. So for me to be like in my 30s, 40s, even early 50s and be going, huh, I still haven't quite, you know, broken through into any kind of anything that's even literary mainstream culture. Uh, and then to have that moment where you go, well, maybe it's me. Maybe it's not them. It's me. That's all good artistic juice. You know, you, you're going to it's going to help you wring the bullshit out of yourself if you take responsibility for your own, you know, failure to ignite <laughs> waves of passion, you know. Um, well, you said media elite, so I'm going to go there for a second. <laughs> um, because it's all so many of us think about most of the days these days. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and the piece you wrote, I, I, thinking about the piece you wrote and my little obsession this past year, which has been fame, and that, those people that you, you traveled around with, with Trump uh, and, or you went to rallies and you saw the people. I've, I've thought from the beginning that his recognizability 
even though he wasn't even a a hero on his show, mm-hmm. is a huge part of his of his allure. And I, I don't know if if did it feel that way at all? Like he was a guy they knew. Oh yeah. In fact, in fact, Dave, yeah, Dave Eggers wrote about that actually. And I think the idea that he, yeah, they knew him. And also I think his kind of crusty pugnacious quality is what they, you know, as, as the guy in the apprentice was actually what they liked. They saw that as a kind of tough honesty and a kind of no bullshit, um, you know, authority figure. So yeah, I think there's no question about that. That was a big, I think that's why he was able to kind of pull ahead of the rest of the Republican field that they just felt kind of dull in comparison. And they also felt unknown, you know, he, with him. I mean, I'm, I'm about as far left as you can get, but I used to love Monty Prentice. I was such a funny, you know, kind of a, an interesting Scrooge like persona. So when they said, Oh, he's running, I'm like, I don't want Scrooge running the country, but, but the people who liked him and didn't see him as Scrooge like, but saw him as uh, tough, but fair, you know, or, or willing to cut through the, political correctness that was a, a huge selling point yeah um and the other tie-in to to the world today is you write a lot of pe- about i mean i i've been go- of course this past week i've been going back through all the books and things that come up are are people battling their own egos to do a risky and often heroic thing yeah and a lot of people are wrestling with what they can do with themselves and I don't know. I I've never been in the position where I've had to make that decision. You know, do you jump in the freezing pond? So th- there's two things that relate to to my topic, and that is is being a hero as opposed to wanting to be famous, wanting to do some thing that's going to actually change someone's life. And then there's let's just stick with that for the for a second as the clock ticks away. Do I have exactly four minutes? No, no, you're good. I'm, I I don't have anything for a while, so we're good. Uh, I. I mean, to me, that that's an interesting, interesting because I have a real. I mean, I was raised Catholic, and I really loved it and really felt it. And so, the the idea of Jesus as this kind of uh, extraordinary figure who comes in and saves you, you know, and and on all kinds of levels, uh, was a strong archetype. That you know, I, uh, but um, the thing I'm thinking more and more in my life is that that it, you have to be careful because that impulse to be a savior figure is also an incredibly egotistical thing because it implies that somebody needs to be saved and it runs, you know, counter to some stuff that I've come across in Buddhist teachings, which is, you know, that the, um, that actually, you know, in a certain way, in a really deep, absolute way, everything's fine. I mean, things, the world is unfolding. Uh, it, it, it does, it isn't necessarily on you to, go out there and alter the trajectory. And if you do, as we often see, the if the if your desire to alter some trajectory has its root in your ego, you know, your your sense of yourself as a messiah, you might overlook some meaningful data and screw it up. You know, you you could be I mean who hasn't done that? You know, I'm gonna intervene <laughs> on X's behalf and then you you make it worse. So I think there's kind of a um in general there's a real interesting you know a lot of interest interesting thing to think about when you talk about trying to be kind or trying to be beneficial and how much of that is being motivated by your need, one's need to be seen that way and how that need actually has a very specific effect, which is it distorts your vision. So you, you, uh, I mean, the example I always think about is you go into a coffee shop and the barista is weeping. Mm-hmm. All right. You're next in line. What do you do? You know, even if you're, if you're sworn to want to be a kind, empathetic, helpful person, what do you do? I don't know. Sometimes you just shut the hell up. Take your change and leave her alone, you know, 
maybe other times it might be beneficial to ask, you know, uh, how would you know? Well, you, you know, the answer is yeah. incredibly heightened awareness. Yes, exactly. Which doesn't, doesn't come just because you will it. It comes from, in my experience, it comes from spiritual practice, you know? So uh, I'm, I'm noticing as somebody who really has a strong Messiah complex, you know, in, in my small middle-aged way that in me, specifically that's something i really want to be careful about because it often involves the assumption that the other person isn't quite capable enough to take care of themselves which is wrong yeah and and it it it, being outwardly being still and listening and then you'll figure out what someone needs yeah but then you know the but but even beyond that there's one other step you know because you're right and for me that's a very important thing be still and listen but on the other hand you know if that becomes a, an ironclad procedure, mm-hmm. that can also be, you know, in other words, I, I notice in myself a real desire to just relax and have a, have a, have a, uh, a slogan, you know, <laughs> uh, always save, you know, or yeah. always be quiet. But the pisser is just like in a work of art, you, you don't get to go on autopilot. Autopilot is actually the enemy. So unfortunately that means, you know, I guess it means awareness. You, you have to really be, open to the idea that every situation manifests differently and your approach would have to be tailored to that particular instant on every occasion, which is a heck of a lot of work. The on, the other uh, element of your work, looking back at it and thinking in my, through my little, my little uh, fame lenses this year is that there are a lot of people, and especially that I, I spent, you know, I think you leave a city, you meet, yeah, I have a much wider circle of people than I ever had when I lived in cities when we're all ghettoized with our little college-educated friends. And I, and when I look back and I read things like, um, what's the story with joysticks in it? Uh, the Oak. Uh, and, and, and Pastoralia and Civil War Land. It's, there's this flip side of fame. It's people being seen who have to, who have no choice, but to be an object to make a living. And I don't know. I don't really, there's not really a question there. It just, it just made me think about it. Well, I think with those stories, I was thinking a lot about just, you know, the, the idea that you, um, I mean, okay. I, so I was raised in, in, uh, in Chicago on the South side and I spent my whole twenties and thirties just kind of fumbling around for money, not, not ever really getting any. And then, and, and sort of like, uh, pretending that it didn't matter and then but feeling in my body, you know, in mind that it actually did matter. The paucity was kind of a drain, you know? So, um, and I, and I kind of dimly noted it in fiction. There wasn't that much of that, you know, uh, th- there was some, but mostly it was either no, somebody not working and going trout fishing or something or um, somebody working a job that wasn't really there. It, it didn't cost them much. Uh, and, and that wasn't running counter to my experience. I mean, there, I, I worked in the slaughterhouse for a while and just, you know, I was maybe 25 or something. And I, I would come home so beat up and feeling like 80, you know, I, I would just go right to bed, didn't do anything, got up in the morning and had that like run hot water on my hands to get them to open up. This is 25 years old. So it's, it felt to me like, um, well, and then when I was writing those first couple books, or the first one, especially I was working full time. We had our kids. And I just noticed, you know, like that kind of weird thing that I was always kind of like averting my gaze from my actual shit to make something up. And 
And so, I mean, I don't think I overtly made the decision, but slowly the real stuff started to come in through a kind of a weird side door, like the, you know, the actual weird little compromises that you make in an office job every day or the way that you have to kind of almost, um, you know, your, your actual motivation is to hang out with your kids and your wife, you know, uh, and there's plenty to do, you know, in the house and there's lots of stuff that needs doing and, you know, lots of fun to be had, but you have to get up. And- D- don't know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. I remember one time, you know, I was working on civil Warland, and there was uh, the first book and, and I had a, it, one of my bosses kind of gave me the good news that I was going to get a field project. I'd been a tech writer, but I had an engineering background. So this is kind of a promotion. Like I'm going to actually get to go out and do some hydrogeologic work. So that's good, but it meant being away from home for like two weeks, which our kids were little and it was just unimaginable two weeks. And it's Fort Drum up in upstate New York, staying at a microtel, you know, and I remember being on the front porch with my wife, like, I don't, I really, I really don't want to do this, you know, almost in tears about it. And we're like, yeah, but you know, you have to, so that there you go. So, so those kind of things, which aren't, you know, it's not, that's not the, the gulag, but, um, <laughs> those small things that you do that seem so uh, counter to your instincts as a human being and the thousands of those things that a a job consists of. And again, not to complain about having a job, but anyway, those things started finding their way into my stories. Uh, Of course, a little exaggerated. And um, so that, so that was really a big breakthrough for me to say kind of like, whatever you're experiencing in this actual life right now, even though it's not the life you're going to have, that's got to be grounds for literature, you know, sort of like in church, they say, if, if, you know, two or more of you are gathered in his name, well, same thing, if two or more of you are gathered, that ought to be grounds for literature, even if it doesn't seem like it. And in fact, the, the less it seems like literature, the more potential there is for originality. Yeah. And it seems like you have to get older and older to get to that point or else some people are, are wise younger to reach there. But every summer I teach a, a workshop at a prep school that I work at. And there's always, there are always one or two people who want to write about, you know, write a first person story about a banker on wall street. Right. And I'm like, right. Yeah. And I, I, I straight up say to them, this is not going to be any good. Unless you do a huge amount of research and then you're going to imitate someone else, but you should do it if you have to, because you don't have a clue. <laughs> you have a clue about being a teenager, and that might be boring to you, but it might not be if you really sit down and start writing about it. Yeah, and I, but now the tricky thing is there's sort of one level beyond that where if the person wrote a fucked up enough version of a Wall mm. Street banker that, that was that was totally infused with his teenage perspectives, it might you know. I mean, who knows? But, but I, I, yeah, I think that's, I mean, for me, the, um, you know, I never was a believer in fiction as a, like a confessional booth, you know, I don't mainly cause I don't want to confess anything. I, I've got plenty, of it, but I don't <laughs> want to do it. So, so I thought it was more as a kind of a morphing booth booth where you took the impulses, um, and you know, little glimpses of beauty and horror that you've had and put them in this machine and it kind of makes a distorted version of them. That, that would still contain the, the actual thing, the beauty and the horror, but it would just be in an alternate presentation. And I mean, I don't believe in that as an abstract thing, but that's the way I have to proceed. Like if someone said, write a book about your childhood, I would just go, no, I, I won't. I just won't. There's nothing there for me. But if I can start to kind of almost like reflect on some weird side thing, all of that, whatever knowledge or wisdom you have, it, it's going to, it's going to flow over there. If you decided to write a, 
a story about, you know, these four pens and a ruler on my desk and personify those. That's a completely idiotic idea. But if you did it energetically enough, it would start to have your have a, a, a tincture of your stuff about it. You know, it would have to. What, what else could you put in there? One of my best experiences as a teacher was uh, a young man I taught when I was at UMass who I ran into probably eight years ago, who I ran into two years ago at a party, who said he was writing these very florid fantasy romantic poems and i said could you write me a poem about this ruler <laughs> and he wrote a great poem about it and he said that changed my life he quit umass went to berkeley and now he's a working musician and i'm like my job is done <laughs> I, oh yeah I, yeah amazing. i felt so good yeah yeah well it's, it is funny i mean i think that that's kind of the game for anybody who's an artist is to kind of uh I guess you sort of accept the whole caboodle, you know, you, you, of course, there are the parts of yourself that you like and that you want to illustrate or use, you know, and then there's that other stuff that's a little rougher and maybe you don't even know about it, you know, but you're going to have to bring it off of the table. So that like teaching at Syracuse, that's one of the great things is we get, the students are so good that you don't have to do the, any of the beginning, you know, there's nothing you have to do except try to get them to do the thing that only they can do. And that's really cool. work. You know, it's very, um, and that's a great point. I don't actually discourage the kid from writing that story, but once they write the horrible draft of the banker story, then I'm a little critical. Because <laughs> they might write a wonder, wonderfully messed up version. Probably, I mean, I, I actually, you know... Probably not. <laughs> probably not, yeah. And and the thing is, I mean, what you're exactly right in that the impulse to do that is sort of, and I remember it because I wrote a million Im imitation Hemingway stories, but the impulse there is to falsify and therefore occupy this ideal space that you wish you were in. But in fact, the, the real work is less glam or maybe more glamorous, which is just occupy the space you're actually in and kind of, you know, de delimit it or demarcate, demarcate, whatever the word is, you know, to mark it out in spite of what you might find, you know, like for me to, to kind of go, uh, to start letting humor in was a big step because I didn't really, I thought it was kind of like, we didn't do that in literature, you know? I grew up loving, you know, funny things and then somehow decided that Joy Division and Beckett were what I loved. So I, you're not supposed to be funny. But then I'm like, oh, yeah, Beckett's really funny. It took yeah, a long time yeah. to realize that. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit like, um, I mean, to sort of come back to the same idea, it's a little bit like the first time you see yourself on a video or on TV or hear an interview of yourself. It's not what you want. You know, it's not what, it's not what you planned. It's, uh, you know, your voice is weird. You look weird. You're you know, you're not saying exactly what you mean, or you can, the worst is when you can sort of see the agenda in yourself, you know, you're, you're trying to, you know, play a part or something, but that's what it is. I mean, there you are, you know, so, so that moment of sundering where your internalized wishful vision of yourself comes up against your actual vision is really good. I mean, it's not comfortable, but it, but it's, uh, and it, and I'm, in prose, I think it happens for me in revision where you, you thought the story was this one thing and you come back to it and the energy is being given off in different places than you expected. So the real litmus test is, do you accept that or reject it? You know, do you cling to your original vision or do you go, okay, shit, I actually do sound that way. Or the story actually does want to go in this direction. And you usually have to, I don't know. I feel, I feel like for me, I usually have to accept that whether I like it or not. Yeah. You, yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's sometimes a struggle and it's not always that fun to accept it, but I think, and, and also, you know, it's funny that every story that I write, 
that moment comes in different guises. So you, again, back to the idea of autopilot, you can never say, here's how I write a story. You, you have to kind of show up and write that particular one, hoping you'll get to that moment of, of, I guess it's honesty or something where this, you know, Stuart Divex says the story is always talking to you, but you have to listen to it. And that, you know, and that's a beautiful lesson that, you know, it gets, it just gets repeated again and again. Well, uh, speaking of youthful fantasy, I've only heard, read or heard you talk about this once, and it was with Jesse Thorne ten years ago. Oh boy! That, that the dream was the band, and I want to know what the band was and what you played and what your idols were. Was this uh, that you were in a high school or post high school band, and that was going to be? Oh yeah, your ticket. Yeah, no. Right. There, no, what happened was, yeah, I, I was, uh, it was senior year and I just hadn't made any plans that we didn't really, you know, in our family, the college really wasn't a thing that you, that you pushed toward. Uh, and so there was this really amazing guitar player in our, in our high school and he drafted me to be in this band with him. So we play in his basement and he was like really good. And uh, I was, we were kind of like, I think we imagined ourselves to be a bit like Kansas. Like he was <laughs> oh, the, that's so awesome. the electric guy and I was a pretty good, pretty good finger picker. You know, and we had a good drummer and then, um, and I did, he was just like an, uh, like a, you know, a star in our school. So for me to get to hang out with him was really cool. And then, um, at one point he said, he said that he had, uh, let's see, how, what was the deal? I always say he, he, he knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody in the Eagles, but that was actually true. There was a, um, there was a, a guy who was opening for the Eagles, a great guitar player. And this, my friend knew him. And so supposedly there was this thing in place that we were going to go on tour and be like the fourth, fourth opening act for the Eagles. And even then I was a little like, yeah, I don't know. That sounds a little, is that how that works? You know? And so I was pretty much not believing it, but willing to play along cause I had nothing else going on. And I really loved, you know, playing with this guy. And then one day he goes, you know, you need a different, no, we had to go buy a PA. So I said, all right. So we go to this music store and he pulls out a uh, certified check from United Artists for like 10 or $20,000, you know? So I think there was something to it. I, I never really investigated it, but, um, so we, I, we played together for, you know, writing some songs and stuff. And then, uh, there was this fateful, uh, trip, you know, if you lived in Chicago, you could go skiing up at, um, in Wisconsin at these kind of drumlins, like it was, I think it's called Wilmot, but pretty modest skiing, you know, and, and, but, and I'd never been. So we went up and I, and uh, one of my high school teachers uh, saw something in me and gave me Atlas Shrugged by Ann Rant, the that big thousand page book. So I took it with me and was reading it. And it just really, I mean, now I don't, you know, I'm not a fan, but that I hadn't read a novel in probably, you know, since I was a little kid and it just pulled me in and I, couldn't wait to get off the hill and read the book, you know, and it was coming alive in my mind. And along with it was this whole idea that I could actually be a thinker, you know, be like an intellectual person. And that's when the switch got thrown on. And I came home from that trip going, I'm going to go to college. And I quit the band and, uh, you know, went from there, but it was a kind of a, like, uh, I think we saw ourselves as like Kansas or yes, you know, kind of like, uh, art rock, you know, so it'd be like lots of, uh, like really, and he was good. We, you know, we do like these two part harmonies and the whole, the whole deal, but you know, do you know where he is today? I, uh, I don't, I don't, I think he went on to have a musical career cause he was really, really gifted. And, uh, but I don't, I don't think he, you know, he became like in a famous band, but I think he teaches or something like that. But there, there are a couple of questions I, there, I usually ask people, often it's people who are, who are 
not at the position where you are now, and that is who would you most, you know, you've talked about this already, but who, what audience do you dream of, or what one person, living or dead, would you most want to read and appreciate your work? Or is there, or also the other part is, is there a first or most important piece of praise from someone, an authority or something that made you be like, I am a writer. This is, huh. you know, not fame, but I am, I am this thing now. Well, you know, the, the second question I, I had written, uh, I, I, I kind of, I kind of broke out of this Hemingway mode at one point and wrote this funny story, uh, called, uh, a lack of order in the floating object room. No, no, that's not true. No, this, this was later. I wrote a story that was in civil war land. Uh, called the wave maker falters. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it kind of in a vacuum at work and I'm like, God, this is, that was so much fun, you know? And I sent it to Toby Wolf, my teacher at Syracuse. And, you know, that was such a, I mean, in some ways kind of a rude thing to do because uh, he's, he wasn't my teacher anymore and he was busy, but he read it very quickly and he just sent back a quick letter. There's no email in those days. And it was just basically like you're on the right track or, or he just, you're, you're hitting a really new note here. And that was it. I mean, that was like, uh, I mean, I was probably, you know, I, I kind of knew that, but to have somebody I loved and respected so much confirm it was just like, yes, I'm good. You know? And uh, so that was the, I mean, the, the best praise I ever could have gotten at, at precisely the right moment, you know? Uh, and as far as who, you know, there's so many people that I, that I, um, you know, all these people that you admire and you love the thought that something that you, do would touch them, you know? So I mean, right now I'm really thinking about Meryl Streep that her, that speech she gave. I thought, what a, what an amazing person, what an icon, you know, but uh, I would be really curious. <laughs> this, this is like stupid, but I would love to have Hemingway read some of my stuff because I don't think he'd like it, but I would, I'd like to have an argument with him about it, you know? Um, and maybe we could fight. I don't know. We'll see if I could get him like really, really old. And then yeah. have me be like 28. Then we could maybe fight. Yeah. Well, you used to fight a little when you were younger, right? I did. I did actually. Yeah. But not anymore. No, I'm, yeah, he was I'm a big not. guy though. He was big. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but old, right. Get him know. old. He was big. And also he was kind of a rich kid. So I don't know. We'll see. Get him old. And maybe I could hit him from behind. I don't know. I would have to work out the details, but, but also, you know, he, he was also an incredibly beautiful writer. I think he gets a little short change, but we've been reading, uh, uh, in class doing a little bit from in our time. And that's an incredibly gorgeous, sensitive, you know, Books. I really don't want to fight. Maybe we get an arm wrestle or something. Right, and no, I think he does get shortchanged. Uh, a lot, for some reason, at at Northfield Mount Hermon, where I where I work, it, Hills Like White Elephants is something almost everyone ends up reading. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's yeah, it's a beautiful story. Yeah, and some of those are, those early ones, that, and the way that that in our time works as a collection is really something worth studying because it's very odd, you know. And you can feel. I think with Tim, you always felt these really sensitive guys uh, fighting with the you know, the more macho part of himself. And, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, have you started, are you on the road yet? No, no, I'm home. And I start, I think in about, a, uh, about 10 days. Mm-hmm. Well, I am going to see you in Cambridge. Are you driving around or just zipping? Uh, part of it. I think we're driving the Southern leg, but mostly it's just flying and it's, you know, it's pretty intense. It's like, um, I mean, this is something I, I didn't realize was that when you actually get the opportunity to tour like that, it's pretty, it's pretty serious. You know, you go, you do uh, an event at night and then fly out early the next morning. And then if the book is doing well, you actually fill up the days with stuff too. So, you know, it, it's, and it's kind of, you know, it's pretty intense. And I could, I could, you know, like we started out talking about how, how modest 
uh, literary fame is, but you can kind of get a little bit of a taste of what a truly famous person's life would be like, because it really, um, you know, you, ha- you, you have to be uh, public for large swaths of the day when you're really tired. And, uh, you know, and it, it's kind of a, it's good. It's like a pretty interesting uh, chore to try to, to try to get through it with grace. I, I think of it as a pretty dream kind of, of, of mini fame in that once the tour is over, yeah, I was talking to uh, Maeve Higgins, who's a who's a comic. Who, you know, uh, she she moved to the U.S., but in Ireland, she's recognized and stopped on the street. She's Irish, <laughs> and and how you don't realize how important your anonymity is until you lose it. But as a writer, very rare, it's pretty rare that you can't just go somewhere else and be invisible. No, you know what actually happens is you go and do a big event, and and you feel so great, and then you step outside, and in two minutes, it's you know, there's nothing. <laughs> so, so it's really, it's really good. But, uh, but you know, you, you can sort of see though that, and, and this goes back to something we talked about earlier is if, if a person is the center of attention in even a modest way for a long stretch of time, it distorts the worldview. You know, suddenly the, you know, since we were little kids, we were trying to get free of the idea that we were central to the universe, you know, and then when you, you hit 30 or so, maybe that starts to actually happen because the world is humiliating you. But then if you get a little bit of attention, that process reverses and you actually start to think, oh, yeah, I was right in the first place. I really am so important, you know. And then what's really funny is when the, when the book's been out a while and that, that buzz dies down and you're back to, you know, your usual number of emails a day, you can really feel the falseness of it. You can feel that you pulled up this sheet over your head and played big shot for a while. And because of the way your bubble gets made, I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're only noticing it when people notice that, you know, then you can convince yourself that this, the world has changed, but it's, it hasn't been, and you just can kind of fucking with yourself for a few months, you know? So the trick is to become familiar with that and go, Oh, I'm, a, I'm at about a 6.8 on the fucking with myself scale. I'll be, I'll be all right. You know? Unless the world just never tells you that and you become the president. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think the world is going to, you know, the world is telling him a lot of things right now. Not good. I just did. Oh, did you really? I, I got yeah. very superstitious about that. Uh, a friend of mine hooked me on that years ago, but there's no wood near me. I, you knock on your head, I guess, when there's no wood. Yeah. Or your boner. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Snuck a boner in there. Um, I listened to a conversation just the other day with you and doing my homework with, um, uh, what's her name? Where boner, you, you, you got embarrassed because there were two boner jokes. Uh, you only get one. Um, uh, I'm just I'm 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 looking over at my screen to see if there's anything in particular that I have not brought up with you that I'll kick myself for later, but I don't think there is. And I'm really glad that we finally chatted today. Uh, I enjoyed it. Glad we made the connection. Uh, the book is, is wonderful, and congratulations. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks. Uh, well, I had, that was so much fun. It was just a great, lovely experience. I'm kind of, kind of missing it. I had this thing where I, you know, the book's got kind of a, a, a constraint, which is I can't do contemporary voices in it because it's set in 1862. So that was part of the fun was to say, okay, that my go-to. I have to put that aside and try to find another thing. But um, what was interesting was not having written in a contemporary voice for four years there's this weird associated effect because I'm not that interested in the contemporary world anymore. 
which is kind of scary. You know, like I don't, I, there used to be a way that I would respond to, um, you know, just like contemporary vistas. I go to the mall. It would, it would like make me artistically kind of revved up and that's coming back slowly now, but it, but it was weird. It was like, I would have thought the relation was you, you get artistically revved up, which produces the language, which I think is true, but I'm finding out that the converse is true. Or the inverse is true that you, the, um, wallowing in contemporary language actually makes you more interested in contemporary phenomenon. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you bring that up because my, I was anxious when they, they sent me the bound galley because you know, as a fan, I am not a fan of historical fiction. Right. Well, me neither. Yeah. So I was like, Oh, Oh, I'm going to be sad. And, and, and then immediately two pages in your it's, it's so your book. Well, I can tell you exactly where that where that turn happened because I had the same feeling. You know, you start writing in this moment, you're like, oh, God, I'm leaving something out. And then, uh, but I think that's kind of the whole process is it's kind of like riding a bike. You know, you say, okay, I'm doing this thing. My reader is starting to get leery. Oh, all right. Well, I can fix that, you know. So, but but it will be nice to go back and write in uh, contemporary voice. But I miss this. I'm, I'm you know, t- to immerse yourself in a historical period like that is so rich, you know, and so uh, it kind of lengthens your working days because you you have all that casual research reading that you can do at night and all that. But, um, yes, it was fun. But, I, uh, but thanks for reading it. Thanks for writing it. And I look forward to hearing it in a couple of weeks. See you in Cambridge. See you in Cambridge. Take care. Okay. Thanks, Jimmy. Bye-bye. Okay. They do say, never meet your heroes, but ignore that. If you get the chance, meet your heroes. They might not disappoint you at all. It was great talking to George Saunders, and I look forward to hearing him read, and I hope you enjoyed it. Please Do all the nice things you can do for a podcast, like rate and review us on iTunes. To find the links I spoke of in the introduction, please go to 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's 15minutes, J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Thanks, as always, to Ed Patnode for making us sound pretty. And to my special guest, Mac. I hope she will deign to join us again sometime. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger. 